Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question and unpack the rest. Today we're asking what does breaking into venture capital look like today and how is it changing? And to do so, I am bringing on Alex Wilhelm, who I am seeing in T minus one month. Alex, I'm so excited. Yeah. How are you? I'm hyped for this show. I'm hyped for Disrupt and I'm hyped to bring this show to Disrupt. It's going to be a blast. I know. We've been busy planning the stages and somehow the podcasts have snuck their way into opening the show. So Equity will be there on day one. And actually we have a discount code that you can use. So use code Equity for 15% off Disrupt tickets. And Alex, I caught on the Monday show that that code can also be used for TechCrunch Plus. I'm like 98% sure that's still correct. I forgot to go back and verify myself internally, but yeah, probably. And if not, just email us and we'll take care of you. But it's going to be fun to see not just you, Natasha, but also everyone else who's joined the team since the last time we were all in person. Heck yes. And that's a perfect transition to our other host today. So we have Becca Skutak. Becca, welcome back to Equity. I think you're our most returned person. Is that the correct English? I don't know if it's the correct English, but happy to be back. (laughs) That's a really polite way of saying that. (laughs) Becca, I'm so excited to meet you too. I feel like we've kind of been revolving around and near each other during our careers. And so seeing you in person is going to feel like meeting an old friend. No, for sure. I mean, I literally had an internship in Boston the semester after you had it. Like we have come so close to meeting each other. I saw you at the Boston Globe Live event. Like we just haven't met each other, but we've been very much so close. It's ridiculous. I am so excited. It's going to be a lot of emotions and I'm saying it now. I plan to not network with anyone other than my colleagues during that week. <laughs> that won't of, last of 30 minutes, but I really <laughs> appreciate the sentiment. It makes me feel special, but let's be real. It's disrupt. It's busy. I always end up doing a lot more chatting with folks than I expect. And it always ends up being frankly helpful. You know? I know. I, I hate and love it. And I think this episode is all about this kind of debate that we have during these conversations and often kind of on background in my world, which is, is it actually getting easier to break into venture capital? And what does that look like today? I feel like that conversation, obviously we're going to talk about it at Disrupt, but us three don't really ever sit down. We just talk to other people about it. And that's what I'm excited to do today. And the reason we're talking about it is really because of a recent news story. I think Fortune reported it first about dorm room fund spinning out of first round capital with 12.5 million in, in money for its newest fund. And participants in the program are students. They're not paid. TechCrunch obviously had lots of thoughts on it. And all of us, plus Amanda Silberling, wrote four views on the idea of unpaid VC internships. Becca, I guess I want to throw to you first. And can you walk us through some more details on what Dorm Room Fund is all about and what their argument is for why it doesn't make sense to pay? Yeah, totally. So they help students and it's an application process if I remember correctly. So students who get selected to the program get to essentially scout and invest in real companies, which on the surface level, like, yes, that's awesome. That's great hands-on real world experience. But at the same point, them not getting paid definitely puts a damper on who can do a program like that. Stuff like that takes time. And if you're someone who needs to work to stay in school or sort of needs to do some of those more financial based activities outside of class, like this is just something that's not going to be available to you, which I think is what is why we originally all started chatting about this to begin with. Yeah, it's not that you couldn't also do this if you also had to work. It's that it's much harder. 
And if the goal of programs that involve students and trying to get younger people prepared for a possible career adventure is also to broaden the aperture a little bit, to broaden the lens, removing friction is a great way to do that. And if you want to know how much venture capitalists care about removing friction, ask them about payment flows to their portfolio companies, and they'll tell you how removing steps leads to higher conversion rates. So (laughs) they know that friction is bad, and they just don't seem to care about it in this case. And that frustrates me because they know about it. Totally. It's kind of weird how we've seen, and weird might not be the right word. I feel like we've seen a lot more efforts around helping students turn into founders and begin companies with starter capital. I think just this week, Connie wrote a piece about Floodgate offering 50K to Mm. students and it being very much like you can totally fail and that is totally fine. But we don't see the same sort of activation capital or just like salary being paid to student VCs, which I don't know why that exists. I don't know why. Like, I I guess like there is more incentive for VCs to help startups start than help their competitors get jobs in their funds. I don't know. That may be a very cynical take on it. The other thing with it too is that Obviously, unpaid internships sort of across industries have a negative connotation, but at least some you get school credit or you do get something out of it that sort of helps you with that. I know from personal experience doing unpaid internships in college, yeah, I didn't get paid for them, but I got enough credits for them that I graduated early and saved tuition on an entire semester of college. So the fact that it's like something like this, you don't really get any financial upside is a little tricky. Yeah, there's ways to hack it. And I want to talk more about this once we get to this conversation again later in the show. But I will say some details with Dorm Room Fund is that they have committed to allocate 100% of any carried interest to nonprofits of students' choice. And then now that it's a independent fund, students are apparently allowed to use management fees, quote, as they see fit, and that there is a portion of unallocated carry that they are deciding on, you know, new creative ways, and that's their wording, to include students in the long-term potential success of the fund. And so we have some details. I don't know if it's as hacky as getting credits for your work, which I actually would love that to be one of the ways. Yeah. It's all just a choice, though, because there's lots of money available. They raised $12.5 million. They could carve off some of it, and they could give it to the students for their work. Also, my beef here with this versus other unpaid internships, which I am opposed to in general, but I think Becca makes a good point they do have occasional uses, is that this is an investment vehicle that is designed to make money. It is not a vehicle that creates acts of journalism. It's not a vehicle that creates care for endangered animals. It is a thing designed to generate return. It is a venture capital fund. Therefore, unpaid labor thereof is ridiculous. And also, dedicating the carry to nonprofits of choice is such a f***ing rich person's thing. Like, oh, we'll just give it to nonprofits. That'll do it. Is everyone happy now? Huh? Huh? Oh, you still can't eat? Why not? Why aren't your parents rich? It's just like... Ah, I know the heart's in the right place, but it's not, when the rubber meets the road, it's not driving the right direction. Let's actually stay on that and rewind a ton, which is when I think about exclusivity and being very hard to break into, I do think of the historical route towards becoming a partner at a venture capital firm. And I thought maybe it would be helpful for us to start with some recent news we saw of a change up, but more so how not everyone is just spinning out and starting their new fund. Like we still see examples of people still having to take the traditional road towards getting footing in a VC firm. Yeah. So we were thinking about Maria Salamanca, who recently left Unshackled Ventures for Ulu Ventures, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so I went back and looked at her 
career history. And if you go way back in time, she was a data analyst. She worked at forward.us. And then later on, she got a job at Unshackled Ventures, eventually made partner there. And then she left that to work at Ulu Ventures, where she's describing kind of a more strategic role where she can build out their consumer strategy. And so this is what we have seen historically in many people, a work history, experience working in companies, and then bringing that kind of a collected experience set to the venture capital world. There are other ways to get in VC in the traditional sense. MBAs have wound up at venture capital firms for a very long time. And there's always been what I call the founder backdoor, which is if you found a company and it does really, really well, and you make friends with lots of VCs and make them lots of money, they may just bring you on to the next fund if they think you're cool and you're done with that particular venture. So either grind it out, go to business school, start early. This helps a lot of you have contacts, of course, or the kind of big exit founder route. And those are the ways that I think about VCs traditionally either climbing the ranks or joining them. I think time is another factor too. As you kind of walk us through those examples, like don't all of those kind of have like this 10-year horizon as part of them? Or have we seen examples of people going from like principal to partner in a few years? I mean, Becca will know this better than I do, but I'm sure there's some examples of that. But the thing in venture capital land, and I think the reason why we pay so much attention to lateral or slightly upward movements across firms or people starting their own funds is that venture capital is kind of a great job and people don't tend to retire. And there's only so many investor slots per capital pool. And often people can allocate lots of capital themselves. So you don't need that many active general partners to disperse a large amount of capital. And so people tend to keep doing it. And so there's not a lot of turnover at the top, which means that turnover lower in the hierarchy also can be relatively stagnant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Becca, I feel like this is totally your world. I'm curious what you're thinking. Yeah, no, this plays into something that comes up a lot when I talk to firms about having diversity at the top of the firms. It's exactly what Alex was saying. Turnover, especially in those higher positions, is just not that often. And it's not like you can just decide, oh, we're just going to hire three new partners because we just want to fund structures and sort of the back-end finances for that pretty much never work out that cleanly. So even if people want to sort of rise through this traditional route, that doesn't mean there's going to be just more positions, even if they're ready to take one. Yeah, I think patience is such a difficult thing to have. And honestly, something I've developed a little bit over the past two years when I haven't seen diversity metrics change as much as I had hoped. But Maria actually brought up an interesting point during our interview. She said that Unshackled, you know, she made partner about a year ago. At Unshackled, she learned how to basically build a fund. So a lot of like how to institutionalize ideas and productize theses and then act on those ideas. A lot of scrappy work. At Ulu, she has much more of a chance to invest in what she cares about, which is consumer. To me, it was interesting to hear someone talk about how traditional VC, depending on where you join, the route may go from you having to do the institutional work before you can do the partner level work. Maybe obvious to some people, but to me, I was like, oh, okay, I guess you have to like fight to get there versus just doing angel investments part-time. Yeah, putting this into journalist terms, like you may end up covering the Boston commodities industry if you actually really wanted to cover sports. And so you may have yeah. to kind of grind your way up and then move and then move and so forth. And so to me, there's, there's a lot of similarities to the jockeying in our world compared to this world, because once you reach the top of a major publication, you're effectively tenured for a period of time. We don't see yearly turnover in who runs, you know, the New York Times or whatever. So... It's slow. Definitely. Can I just say, though, the time thing, though, Natasha? People have been telling us that same thing as to why there's not more diverse people at the top of venture capital firms for more than 10 years. Yeah. I feel like that excuse went from, eh, okay, that's reasonable, to really? Like, I don't buy it as much anymore, given the lack of progress. How many funds have you raised in the last 10 years? That's the real question. Uh, I've raised- If you've raised a couple more funds, you can add in more partners. Oh, not you specifically, but these different venture funds saying that. Oh, I was like, none, none, <laughs> Becca. The answer was zero. <laughs> 
<laughs> negative Because you definitely one. can't just like create necessarily some of these new positions if you're in the middle of deploying a fund, but it's like if you've raised three funds in the last 10 years, it's like you actually do have that flexibility to add in stuff like that. Or if you've been raising bigger funds, like every single venture capitalist has been doing in the last <laughs> 10 years, you can also have more partners because you have more capital to put out. I love that it's becoming like a broader career conversation because I actually didn't think about how much we probably do this. We don't reverse engineer our own jobs sometimes, but very much it's very normal and common that you build up towards more autonomy. But some people just leave when they're sick of it and start their own thing. So last year, I think more so, we saw the beginning of a new wave of on-ramps into venture capital. And just like the rise of first-time fund managers, Becca, which I know you've been sourcing with and covering for years before you were at TC too. Yeah, definitely. A lot of the first-time fund managers, I mean, from the ones I've spoken to, some of them straight up are starting their own fund for that exact reason. Oh, I've been grinding away at this well-known name brand firm for years. There just isn't a position for me to move into at the time. And I'm just tired of waiting. I know I can invest. I know I could be making more back on my investments, like all that kind of stuff. So I definitely think that is a big driver of the wave of first-time managers we have seen. And it's also interesting to think about that because more funds means more opportunities to then bring on more people at the lower stages of the totem pole too. So it's like that, I think, in my mind at least, has been one of the biggest catalysts to kind of expanding who can get to venture just because they're just adding more positions to the job list for people to potentially get and apply to to join the industry. Hell yeah. When I see so many people starting from scratch, I first was thinking, oh my God, they're just so ambitious. But now I'm thinking they just know how to work around archaic processes. And I think if the traditional route towards becoming a partner that Alex just walked us through was easier or did what it says it does, we wouldn't have seen such a boom over the last year. Like I feel like last year and this year too, where we see a lot of people spinning out to do their own thing, just like reminded me that like on ramps into this world, like needed a huge refresh. I feel like, you know, it's bad when you have to like leave on your own to actually make a difference at times. And not to say some people just didn't want to for their own true ambition. I just think that there was probably a little bit of both where it's you're looking for your own ambition, but also because the traditional world does not work as fast as you want it to. Yeah. And trying to enact faster change is relatively, I think, important to the startup world and the venture capitalists that back these upstart companies. It's almost reasonably ironic that we're seeing venture be reinvented by new entrants, if you will, and the old guard kind of hold on to their old ways. But Becca, I want to ask you a question because one thing you and I have talked about is how much capital VCs are raising this year. And it's a lot. It might be an all-time record. Of course, we're still in Q3, so data coming in. But like, it looks like a very impressive fundraising haul for VCs. And so to me, the venture capital asset class has expanded over time. And I, I'm wondering if the rise of first-time fund managers and everything from rolling funds on down, is that predicated partially on just there being more total money available for VC and therefore more folks can do it? Or are people breaking up the same size pie? No, I definitely think there are more LPs in venture now. And would I say there are more of like the big traditional LPs you think of, like pension funds and stuff? No, I don't really think so mm -hmm. in that way, except CalPERS did say in their meeting that they're considering investing more in venture next year, which would be really interesting. But I think it's more of just people who have done well in venture just seem to be more open to being LPs than I've ever seen. Especially back when I originally started covering this space, I mainly covered it through the LP lens. And this was something that rarely came up. And now Ooh. it seems like almost every single fund is half, if not entirely, backed by other people in the industry, founders, other VCs. So I definitely would say that the pile of money coming into the industry is bigger. I know it's also really popular now, 
for a lot of emerging managers, obviously you can't necessarily for fund one because you don't have a portfolio yet. But I've talked to multiple emerging managers this year who are on fund two, fund three, where huge percentage of the money they raise for those funds are from founders from fund one who have done well, like what they're doing, like want to support it from the other side as well. So I definitely think the amount of money that VCs can pull from, especially some of these first-time and emerging managers, I would say it's larger, yeah. I actually, if we can spend a second talking about LPs, I would love that because obviously in order to get more investors into the world, as you described there needs to be more people who want to invest in them. And so begins the cycle of how hard it is to raise. So I'm curious, Becca, if you've talked to any LPs lately that are giving you a good sense on if we're seeing any like efforts or, or newer efforts being made to get more people investing in funds and not just startups. Is there any like momentum or efforts there? Not that I've heard of. It hasn't come up yet, but definitely something I'd be interested to ask about. Yeah, because I mean, I think a little bit about the tourist VC. And I think we saw a lot of like the creation of rolling funds help some people become quote unquote LPs because you can now through rolling funds, which is an angelist vehicle, bet on people in a quarterly basis. And so instead of, you know, needing to have 10 million on hand or whatever a pension fund invests in emerging fund managers these days, you can have 50K and invest on a quarterly basis. It just ended up breaking a little bit about what you think an LP is. I haven't heard about rolling funds in a long time. I don't know about either of you. But that felt like the last biggest jolt to who gets to invest and empower the next wave of VCs. Yeah, and I mean, this is just a total riff. I haven't seen anything that sort of proves this. But I'm curious, kind of coming out of a market like this, where everyone's talking about, oh, diversification is so important, diversification is so important. If you were thinking of investing in the venture landscape for the first time, would you invest in a startup when everything's going down? Or would you invest in a fund? There's everyone saying diversification is more important. If you're going to put money in the industry anyway, I'm curious if this will drive some people more to the LP side. Well, this is why I think we're seeing founders do it. Because founders, by definition, are working on one main bet, their company. And so if you can get, I don't know, some really cool secondary and then deploy that into your friend's fund or rolling vehicle, suddenly you're essentially taking equity out of your startup early, putting that capital to work for you, creating a more diversified basket of bets on the startup market. Why not go broad? Now, in the old days, this would be considered a lack of focus, a lack of dedication to the core idea. It would be considered a a signaling risk, a red flag, if you will. But venture has changed to become, I think, much more mercenary over messianic, maybe. And so I think people are now expected to be a bit more aggressive with their use of funds, even when they're still building company number one. Yeah. Especially though, if like they're getting backed by these people who are in the same flywheel as them, it's like, why would that LP care that you're doing those other things if they're literally also a founder of a different startup and stuff that all kind of like ends up building off each other, I feel. But then how do people get anything done? Because like I have one job and one relationship and I'm maxed. How do you build a company (laughs) and do anything else? That's the thing that blows my mind. Like what? I think like the part-time VC wave was marketed as like, this is going to help bring in a new generation of investors who want to do more than angel investing, but less than starting their own fund. But like to your point, Alex, I think it one only really supported a very specific kind of person and subsector of person. And I imagine someone who did have the bandwidth. And I, I don't think that always is the case, or that's just not like necessarily moving the needle as much as I had hoped it would. Is the real like change towards helping people get into venture would be less about how do you do it part-time and more about, okay, there are these people who want to be full-time investors. How do we make it easier for them to build a network or build a track record? And for so long, I still feel like the biggest innovation has been like scout programs and sharing interest 
and carry that way. I mean, it's kind of a bummer. And I feel like people can tell where our show is heading, which is we're unimpressed. (laughs) All the different on-ramps and the progress that we've seen. One that I have been noticing over the last year that I have liked is, well, colleges have always had venture programs that either people got credit for or that they did actually get financial incentives from the fund for. But what I've noticed over the last year is like, these are getting much more nuanced. I know Ron Miller covered one for TechCrunch called Peachtree Minority Venture Fund. I covered them yes. prior to coming here. And like, they're a great example. They get course credit and hands-on instruction. And it's not only just teaching them how to be VCs, it's teaching them how to be VCs who take a diversity lens in mind. And since they launched, one of the partners told me that multiple schools have reached out to them and been like, can you help us set up this kind of program here? Like, it just seems like the academic route, I think, is getting better, which is why I think the dorm room fun thing kind of disappointed me. Because I feel like the last year I have seen a lot of schools and a lot of groups in the academia world really making an effort to make new programs to help get more people into venture that I thought were actually moving in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, as you said that, I'm thinking like, what was the name of the program you just mentioned? Peachtree Minority Venture Fund. It's based out of um, Emory University. Oh, awesome. So when I heard that, I think that they are helping those students basically not waste or have to spend like the first two years of their VC internship learning about institutions and building up the basic knowledge, which I feel like is a smart way of providing an on-ramp without necessarily needing to provide capital for them to play around with. And so I do think there's like a way to meet in the middle where it's like all on-ramps don't need to look the same. There can be the on-ramps that help you learn. There can be the on-ramps that help you invest. And then there can be the on-ramps that help you network. And in my head, like it would just be better if each on-ramp didn't try and say that it did everything, but was just honest about what it is accomplishing for students, for newer investors, or for people who are trying to like raise their first or, or third fund. Or rich people could be slightly less cheap. I mean, that. a $12.5 million <laughs> fund could break off 10K per investing student and never notice the difference and turn this not only from a learning opportunity and a way to build experience, but also a way to avoid student debt and to have more optionality post-graduation and to have the flexibility to do more stuff. Like it's not hard given the amount of money we're talking about. This is back to the dorm room fund example, but people don't do it because they don't have the same needs set, I think, when they were at that age, and it drives me nuts. No, and I know from speaking with a lot of first-time and emerging managers, this is like a hot debate in that community specifically, because you'll get a lot of first-time fund managers who are like, oh, I have a small fund, I have all these unpaid interns, there's nothing I can do about it. And then you'll also get funds on the other side of the table that's like, hey, you may be a small fund, but paying your interns is not going to matter on your balance sheet. So you absolutely should be doing it. So I know a lot of, I've heard, and these are from conversations where I wasn't asking about this in particular, especially like solo GPs and stuff like that, whether or not to pay the interns is a really hot issue in that community. Okay, let's just go ahead and be very clear here. Pay your interns because you're extracting work from them and offering, in my view, a patina of college credit or something else or experience is ridiculous. And if you have the need for interns, you're running a business. And if you're running a business, you should pay your workers. Like this is, to me, this is just so simple. And I'm in awe of the mental gymnastics that people will do to find a way to make it okay to not pay the most junior workers. And to me, it's just aggressive parsimony and it's morally disgusting. Also in some places, it's not legal. There you go. That's so good. it's like, oh, if you want to hire the best interns, you're cutting out interns from certain schools in certain states if you don't pay them automatically. Well, sounds like another good reason to pay your interns. So you have better access to the candidate pool. 
Around the unpaid VC internship debate, which I mean, I've taken unpaid internships. They have helped me get my first job and I'm sure it played a role in every single job, including this one. So I don't want to pretend like I didn't benefit from them. Something feels weird to me about being like, they shouldn't exist, but also I'm going to take them because I need them. I think just because things are common doesn't mean that they should exist. And that's what I kind of argued in the four views is like, I definitely disagree with the idea of not paying your venture interns. I also think that it's important to talk about like the trade-off. So if you can only pay two interns and that is what you are going to afford and that's all the dorm room fund is going to choose for each school. What does that mean to like the 40 interns who wouldn't have been unpaid, but would have been able to be part of the program? That's me being devil's advocate, but I am wondering like the wider aperture in some ways, even if it's unpaid, could help people get the network that gets them the first job. And that's just something I'm thinking through when I think about the disruption of these on-ramps. It feels a little harder than just pay all the interns. What if it becomes two interns and you just bet on the two, not as, you know, the two homogenous interns who uh, have connections to Stanford? Well, that is like a shitty version of yeah, it. Yeah, no, no. I hear what you're saying and I, I appreciate it. And I'm always probably talking about five decibels more angrily than I should when I talk about these things. So I appreciate the blowback. And just to be clear, dorm room fund is simply the company we're talking about. We're not trying to specifically be jerks to them. They're, I mean, scouts are similar, right? So like, I think it's like an issue venture has. So just to, yeah, just to validate. This is a broader point. Dorm room fund is in the spotlight, but we're not trying to specifically say they're the bad actors, no one else is, et cetera. So if you're, if you're dorm room fund listening to this, trust me, we're not trying to make your day any worse. To the point though about number of interns and access to these programs and it would it be better to have a wide aperture and no money or a smaller aperture and payment? You're not going to have 40 interns per school if your fund is 12 and a half million. You're going to have a handful because there's not that much capital to disperse. And so you're not going to have 50 to 100 people scrapping over the number of deals you can do with 12 and a half million, which I presume some will be saved for follow-on capital and so forth. And so, you know, if you want to have that many, you're going to have a much larger capital pool, which means there's more money available to pay them. Also, if you were to do that sort of model, like less interns, but pay them, if you did more interns that were unpaid, you still are going to pull from a smaller applicant pool, I feel, yeah. than you would if you had, say, just two positions that were paid. Because a lot of people are going to see it and just be like, oh, well, people from Stanford are going to apply for this and I really need to work and I'm just like not even going to apply. So I feel like even having less interns that are paid, regardless of sort of the back end fund financials and how this all works out, you're going to get a better applicant pool. I agree with that. If these different programs and initiatives that help people break into venture are valuing or even advertising the right thing to provide to people. So I'll put it in simpler words, but basically in Dorm Room Fund's case, they are advertising hands-on experience, working with deals and understanding investors. With the Peachtree example, you're learning about institutional knowledge and also getting connected to real actors in the business. I mean, these all sound like they are disrupting network and trying to make it easier for emerging fund managers to have more diverse or more interesting networks. But I want to ask, like, is network really the thing that helps people break into venture in the first place? Or is it another thing? Sorry, it's a big one to end on. <laughs> I wish it wasn't so much network, but I just time and time and again feel like it is. Even if it's not just like a straight shot network, not, oh, I went to Stanford, I met X and X class, that's why I'm in the industry. But network of even being like, oh, I know X from the college I went to back in my home state and now he's a founder and I wanted to back him. And like because of him, I'm now like getting into the investing space. So I feel like network in this way is sometimes used as a negative connotation or always used as a negative connotation. Like, oh, your parents know X or oh, you went to Stanford. So you have, of course, you took that class with X professor who knows X at Sequoia. But I don't think network necessarily always has to be a bad thing or have a negative connotation in that way. Like, I feel like a lot of people do get into venture 
through their network who wouldn't otherwise, but through a positive connotation, knowing someone to start a startup, realizing you like investing, like things like that, I think are also part of the conversation. Agreeing with Becca that networks are not a dirty word. They are often used by people without networks to point out that some people inherited theirs, but an earned network is an asset that you can go out and work to build yourself. And that's why these programs can open doors that may otherwise have been closed. So I'm totally here for that. But I think there's more to it than just networking. There's also building up actual skills. I mean, the people that go out there and start their own fund don't just have a network. They also have know-how. And so it's a combination for me. I would say that venture could be moving much faster to disrupt itself, but it doesn't need to because its model currently works for the people in charge. And, you know, until we change the incentives, I doubt we're going to change many of the outcomes. So maybe this is why we're so harsh on dorm room fund. Because we're hoping that someone's going to be the leader that's going to change things. And when someone falls short of what we as humans hope to see in a relatively stodgy industry, frankly, it's disappointment and a missed opportunity. So really, maybe much of the opprobrium that we've (laughs) heaped on their doorstep is really just us wishing that other people were doing better and channeling that through their example. Yeah, Alex, I think you're spot on there. Like, I think when we saw the boom over the past few years, there was a little bit of like, we know it's buzzy. A lot of people are starting their debut fund or starting a rolling fund and could make like, I'll say it, I made like sassy comments or it was kind of like anyone can start a fund. And I still ask a lot of people when they join or switch funds, like, why don't you start your own? But I think it all inherently boils back to the fact that it's like we haven't seen a massive disruption except for on the founder side. And that's what I keep coming back to. I see there's a lot of focus, I think, on trying to find new and interesting ways to help founders take that jump, take that leap. YC extending its check size. We see accelerators not taking equity these days as another way to help people be more comfortable with working and beginning a fund. And so I'm like, why? Why is it so stagnating on the VC side? It's because it works for enough people. I guess. I just realized another parallel with journalism. Asking a VC who changes firms but doesn't go off on their own why they didn't go off on their own is very much like asking a journalist who changes publications why they didn't just go do a Substack. The answer yeah. is institutions have systems in place that make for an easier life, like health insurance, you know, 401k matching. Totally. Or in venture capital, carry and jets. I wonder if we see the wave of emerging fund managers over the past few years, once we see them either not be able to raise their third or fourth fund and have to go back to VC funds or have to change the definition once again, then we see the disruption because then we see it's not that easy to start a fund right now. So we have to go back and look at what we're working with. And maybe that's the disruption we're waiting for in a few years. I just feel like there's a delay and I'm hoping for there to be some catalyst that blows everything up. Yeah. No, I think I agree with Alex too, with the point of, I think that's why this particular story stood out to us so much is it felt like we have seen a lot of cool innovations on the space and a lot of different methods of people getting in and people getting involved and new ways to sort of broaden the lens of who's in the venture asset class. And then something like this just makes you go, oh, okay, we're still doing this. Got it. Yeah. Becca, is there any hope you're hearing about how the downturn plays into all this? Because on my end, it's a lot of like, people are going to struggle to raise their next funds. And so we're going to see a pretty big retreat. Is there anything, any bullishness there? (laughs) Well, it's weird because I was covering emerging managers fundraising last week or the week before. And there's this big disparity now where it's like either first time fund managers really, really struggle to get to the first close or they raise their fund in four weeks. So who that favors and stuff. I've talked to a couple of firms that are really interesting in niche strategies. Some are run by people of color. So like it's definitely not a cut and dry oh, like the white guys from Stanford are raising their first close in four weeks. Everyone else is not. But 
yeah, I wish I had a better thread there, but I've been very confused by it. So hopefully no, that, we'll know more in the future. It challenges like the lazy interpretation, right? Which is everything is going to be bad for people of color. And I don't mean lazy in like a mean way. I mean it like that is the assumed. Right. If we see some contrarian people raise funds, they won't feel so contrarian after all of this. And that would be very refreshing to me. But I want to end on that semi-positive note. I feel like it was a lot of different conversations and threads. So thank you guys for pulling them together with me. Becca, you are always welcome back on the pod. And not to spoil things, but you will be back on the pod a lot more coming up. Mm-hmm. No, always happy to be on. Thanks, Alex. You're the best as always. And everyone else, we will chat with you on Friday. 